find 2 Chronicles chapter 7 to follow along as we read this text. If you're not familiar with that part of the Bible, it's 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And uh, what we are dealing with here in this portion of the Bible is the historical books or books of history. And so they are in narrative form. So we're going to read the entire chapter, 22 verses. Uh, In New Testament epistles, we can take a phrase or a sentence and sometimes even a, a word and spend our time explaining it and digging into it. In the Old Testament, it's a little bit different. We need to get the entire story. And so I would like for you to engage with God's Word this morning and follow along as I read 2 Chronicles chapter 7 in its entirety. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. And the priests could not enter into the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement, and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. And King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. And the priests waited on their offices, the Levites also, with instruments of music of the Lord, which David the king had made to praise the Lord, because his mercy endureth forever. When David praised by their ministry, and the priests sounded trumpets before them, and all Israel stood. Moreover, Solomon hallowed the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, because the brazen altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings and the meat offerings and the fat. Also at that same time, Solomon kept the feast seven days. And all Israel with him, a very great congregation from the entering in of Hamath into the river of Egypt. And in the eighth day they made a solemn assembly, for they kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. And on the three and twentieth day of the seventh month he sent the people away into their tents, glad and merry in heart, for the goodness that the Lord had showed unto David and to Solomon and to Israel his people. Thus... Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house he prosperously effected. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open and mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. 
And as for thee, if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, and shalt observe my statutes and my judgments, then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom, according as I have covenanted with David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man to be ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land which I have given them. And this house which I have sanctified for my name will I cast out of my sight and will make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations. And this house which is high shall be an astonishment to everyone that passeth by it. So that he shall say, Why hath the Lord done this unto this land and unto this house? And it shall be answered, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore hath he brought all this evil upon them. Would you join me in prayer? O Heavenly Father, it is our sincere desire to understand the meaning of this text. We believe that it is divinely inspired that you have spoken through holy men of old, that you have penned these accounts, that they were not only historical, but that they are instructional. And so, Lord, I pray and ask that you would help us to discern what is specific to Israel and what can be applied to us as a nation of people today. Father, I pray and ask that you would help us to be instructed and admonished and to realize that previous and prior blessings on a nation do not guarantee perpetual blessings, but it depends upon what that people does with you, where they place you in their priority list, and where you rank in their nation's heart. And so, Father, I pray and ask that you would help us to realize what we can do for our country today. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. I was born 11 years after John F. Kennedy was assassinated, but his voice is embedded in my childhood memories because of an audio clip from his inaugural address. It was this phrase, this statement, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. That audio clip, I remember being played as a little boy. It was inspiring. It was something that was elevated, especially after JFK's assassination. Uh, he uh, was, uh, was uh, uh, amplified and magnified because of that. And, and as I looked back at the context of that speech, as I said, I, I wasn't present there. I remember my mom telling me that she watched it on TV as a teenage girl. But when I looked back at the cultural context of the speech, I realized that it wasn't really much different from ours today. It was similar to the issues that we're facing, both sociological and geopolitical. Uh, think about it. In that day and time, Russia was a concern. Tensions of the Cold War were rising as America and Russia were both in an arms race, the two superpowers of the world. Here at home, our country was in a recession at that time, and unemployment rates were nearing 7% at the time that JFK took office and gave that address. 
Furthermore, the U.S. had just sent its first troops into Vietnam. 3,500 troops had been sent in, and it would be a war that would last over a decade at the cost of much life. It was also at that time that OPEC had recently formed, and they formed to control the production of oil and to leverage its supply uh, to have political influence over the nations. Not only that, it was also the beginning of what is known as the sexual revolution that would reshape the societal norms of accepted morality. Now, I know that the 35th president was using this speech to rally citizens to higher civic duty. And as uh, people were looking around and saying, well, what is our country doing and why isn't our country doing this? He tried to redirect them and say, don't ask what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. And as inspiring as that was, and as many people who took it to heart over the years, 60 years later, you and I can see that it did not solve these national problems. Here we are again. Russia is on the rise. The Cold War really is not over. Unemployment rates are rising. Inflation is going up. We've entered into a recession. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to direct you to what God says we can do for our country that can have a real impact on the problems that plague our nation. While there are problems that I don't have confidence that our uh, political leaders will be able to solve, I have confidence in a higher power, a God that when we do what he's called us to do, does things that we cannot do, I believe that there is something that we can do for our country. In this text of Scripture, King Solomon has just completed the temple in Jerusalem. It is a house of God in the capital city of Israel. As we read that text, perhaps you noticed that it it wasn't just the king, it wasn't just a political party, it wasn't just the religious group, it was all of Israel. It was from Hamath to Egypt, It, it was everybody within the borders. They were coming together and they were focused on God. They bowed down, they worshiped him. The king offered over 100,000 burnt offerings. The people were praising the Lord. They celebrated a feast seven days. I I am telling you the nation of Israel was orienting itself around Jehovah God. The entire country is celebrating with worship and praise and offering sacrifices. And then in verse 12, God appears to Solomon to inform the king that he has heard and will answer his prayer. Well, that ought to cause us to say, what prayer? What prayer is God hearing and answering? Because what we have is a description of what's going on. The sacrifices, the dedication, the glory of the Lord filling the house. Then all of a sudden, in the middle of the chapter, God appears to Solomon and says, I've heard your prayer and I am going to answer it. Well, the answer is in the text. It's the prayer that was completed in verse 1 of chapter 7 as we began reading. Now when Solomon had made an end of praying. And so as we follow these Bible study clues, we find the transcript of Solomon's prayer in chapter 6. 
It begins in verse 12 and it goes all the way to verse 42. I won't read that entire text to you, but I will summarize it for you. You see, although life is great in Israel at this time, and it is great. I mean, this is when Israel is hitting its zenith. Solomon is the direct descendant of David. David has prepared a way for the temple to be built. God has granted that Solomon would do that. God has blessed Solomon's rule. The country is prosperous. They are rich. They are growing. They are not fighting wars. They are at peace. Solomon has not strayed away from God at this point in his rule. And although life is great in Israel at this time, Solomon knows that people have a tendency to sin. We know that, don't we? We have this tendency. It's innate in us. We have this sin nature. And countries and schools and institutions and organizations have a tendency to drift away from God. As a matter of fact, if you examine any of the Ivy League schools in the United States of America, you will find that they all began as seminaries, places of theological training. And if you go back to their founding documents and their first presidents, you will find that they were Bible-believing, God-fearing, Christian worldview people. And now you will find that there is not a hint of that in most of the Ivy League schools. Well, I'm not picking on Ivy League schools. You can pick almost any institution. And you will find that there is this tendency to drift away from God. Solomon knows that. God has given him wisdom. And so Solomon prays and he asks God. And God answers to him what to do. What to do in that situation. What happens if Israel sins? What happens if we get away from God? What happens? What should we do? As a matter of fact, in chapter 6, verses 24 through 36, Solomon lists some possible scenarios of national sin and judgment. He says things like this, well, if we experience military defeat or, or if our enemies attack us and, and, and we are on the losing side, well, if there is drought that comes or if there are heat waves that comes or food insecurity or infectious diseases that spread throughout the land and other natural disasters... And so Solomon, as he is praying, he is limited by his own uh, human, uh, humanity, and he is simply trying to imagine things that could happen. And he's praying and he's asking God, if this happens, will you make a way for us to repent? And when we repent, will you be gracious and will you restore us? And so here's what's interesting. Solomon's speculations are confirmed by God in chapter 7, verse 13. So if you've got your Bible there in front of you, security, remember 2 Chronicles 7.12, God appears to Solomon, I've heard your prayer. And then verse 13, God says this, he confirms what Solomon speculated on. He said, if I shut up heaven that there be no rain. Or if I command the locusts to devour the land. Or if I send pestilence among my people. You realize that these refer, we could place these in some general categories. Things like climate issues, food supply, gross domestic product, economy, epidemics. 
all things that we are facing as a nation today. The specifics, is it locusts devouring our food? No, but is there a food shortage? Yes, just go to the grocery store and you'll find some things that are hard to find or shelves that are empty that used to be full. Uh, Are there economic issues with the gross domestic product? Most certainly there are. And so these, if we were just looking at them categorically, we would say, oh, wait, wait a minute, some of the things that, uh, that Solomon was concerned might happen to Israel if they got away from God and that God confirmed that he would send as judgments if they did get away from him, we as a nation have to step back and say, whoa, wait a minute, we're experiencing many of those things. The avenues, the details may be different, but the categories are the same. So here's the good news. After God confirmed to Solomon that he would judge a nation in that way, in corrective measures if they get away from him, he also went on to give specific instructions on what they could do for their country at a time like this. He says, here's what you can do. I'm going to give you the formula of what you can do for your country. And so 2 Chronicles 7.14 is an if-then statement. It's an if-then statement. Uh, it, it, It contains a hypothesis, if, and a conclusion, then. And so in essence, God says, if you do this, I will do that. I mean, I like that kind of instruction. Now, I may not like what I have to do, but I like knowing that there's something that I can do that God said will directly result in him taking positive action towards me or towards my country. And so what I'd like to do this morning, in the few minutes that we have left in this service, is just break down this verse and see what we can do for our country. So 2 Chronicles 7.14 begins with this word, if. Do you realize that if is a possibility word? It it indicates that, that, that change is possible. There are some things that that God says, hey, it doesn't matter what you do, it's not possible. Remember, Esau sought the Lord and repentance with much tears but couldn't find it. Why? Because that possibility wasn't available to him. And the good news is God says, yes, your country is doing good now. But if your country gets away from its founding principles and gets away from its father's God, and if your country begins to experience the repercussions of that, there is a possibility that you can see a real change and so God begins with that word if as a indication that change is possible but we also know this it's a conditional word it's not just a word of possibility it is a conditional word it indicates that God has delegated a choice to us I understand we've talked about the sovereignty of God. We've talked about predestination. We've talked about being foreordained. We've talked about the elect. But you know one thing I can't seem to get over in the Bible are all of the if statements that are made by God which indicate that even though he is sovereign and he has predetermined some things, he has also delegated a free will choice to people in certain matters and this is an indication of that 
God's not saying, hey, if you cross the line, that's it. You're done. I'm through with you. You can't do a thing. It doesn't matter if you repent in sackcloth and ashes. It doesn't matter if you offer 200,000 sacrifices. Nothing's going to change. No, he says, if. It's a condition. And you have the power to meet the condition, Israel. And I would say to you and I as Americans, it's a possibility word. It's possible that God can affect change in our nation if we're willing to meet certain conditions. He goes on. If my people which are called by my name. Do you know what God is doing here? He's identifying a certain demographic. This is not open-ended. This isn't the Syrians. He's not speaking to the Egyptians. He's not talking to the Babylonians. He's not talking to the Greeks. You know who he's speaking to? He's speaking to his people, the ones who are called by his name. This was Israel in the Old Testament. It is the line of Abraham, that man that God called in Genesis chapter 12, made a covenant with, said, I will bless you and I will bless the nations through you and I will bless your offspring and I will make a nation out of you. And so he is speaking to Old Testament Israel in this text. And if you're wondering who the demographic is in the New Testament, it is the church. We just covered that in Ephesians chapter 2, how that Christ has made one new body out of Jew and Gentile in Christ and so if he's speaking to Old Testament in Israel in the Old Testament I would say the demographic he's speaking to today is us church it's believers in whatever nation we are in we are his people who are called by his name get this it's not atheists that he's speaking to well if all the atheists would just humble themselves Pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I would heal their land. No, he doesn't, he doesn't address the atheists. He doesn't address the secularists. Well, if everybody who doesn't believe in God would just start believing in God and humble and pray and seek my face, then I would hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal. They know he doesn't address the secularists. He doesn't even address the religionists. Those who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. Do you know who he is addressing? He is addressing genuine born-again believers in Christ. He is addressing people who genuinely, genuinely had entered into the covenant of Israel with Jehovah. Those are the people that he's speaking to. Well, that's good news and that's bad news. It's good news because it means you and I have real power with God. We have an opportunity to do something that can have an impact on our country. Even though we might be a minority in comparison to the majority of the population of our country, God has said, if my people will turn, if my people will pray, then I will hear, I will forgive, I will heal their land. It's bad news in this sense. It's up to us on our shoulders we have a real responsibility as Christian citizens in a nation we have a responsibility that other people do not have and so God says if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves that simply means voluntarily bow down to God in deep contrition 
humble themselves. We just had a month, I think they call it humble month. No, we take something that God has condemned throughout all of Scripture called pride. And we've turned it into something to be celebrated. Now, before any liberals get their hackles up and say, why are you talking about? I, no, I, listen, I'm not even talking about what we're prideful about. I'm saying pride alone is the problem. Pride cometh before fall, halty spirit before destruction. Seven things, six things does God hate. Yea, seven are abomination. A proud look is top of the list. And so we're pretty good at being Christian people and say, well, you know, if those group over there, if they would change their ways, well, if they, these over here on this side, they I will change their ways. Wait a minute. God says if my people will humble themselves. We've got a pride problem that stands in the way. We have a pride problem. You say, what does it look like to humble yourself? Well, a couple examples in Scripture. One is in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah at a time of national upset. The king who had reigned for 52 years, all of Isaiah's life has recently passed away. He is worried about what's going to happen on a national level. And God appears to him and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And when he sees God on his throne, he humbles himself. And in Isaiah 6, 5, it says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts what does it mean to humble yourself it means to be like isaiah and admit culpability woe is me i'm undone look i might look pretty good compared to this person or that person if i go through the penitentiary files i might think justin hall's pretty good but if I look at God Almighty, what I find out is that Justin Hall is thoroughly sinful and unholy on his best days. And that all of my righteousnesses are as filthy rags in comparison to his pure and righteous standard. And to fall broken before the Lord admitting that. And not just saying it's all these people around here. Yes, Isaiah does include his nation. But he starts with himself. Another example, Nehemiah. Anybody remember what Nehemiah is remembered for? Remember for the revival of Jerusalem, rebuilding the wall after God's judgment has come on the nation. How did that all begin? It began with Nehemiah humbling himself in Nehemiah 1, 5 through 7. And he said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love Him and observe His commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee. Both I... And my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. 
That's what God means when he says, If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves. When's the last time you got on your knees before the Lord and said, Lord, it's me. I'm the problem. Lord, it's me. I, I, I know that I'm not perfect. Lord, I, I know that I struggle in my own heart and I, I've allowed too many things to enter into my life that, that, that are not sanctioned by you. You see, because the prescription goes on, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Well, pray is simple. It means that we give more time to prayer. Say, so what do I do in time of national crisis? What do I do when I'm concerned that my nation is going the wrong way? What, what do I do when I'm concerned about crime rates or death rates or poverty or food shortage? Well, there's a number of things that we can do, but one thing we ought to do is we ought to increase our prayer time. How much time do we give to it? I believe we're commanded in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to pray for kings and magistrates and all who are in authority that we can live a quiet and peaceable life in the sight of God. You see, we sit around and we bemoan the fact that our country isn't what we would like it to be or what it, is, it used to be. And yet we won't bow a knee. We won't confess a sin. We won't invite God to do any introspection into our own lives. But notice this. This is interesting. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, he doesn't just say, if my people will humble themselves and, and pray. Because you and I sometimes have a one-sided view of what prayer is. Prayer, what God is asking for here, what God is prescribing here, is not just to bring a laundry list of the problems as we see them. That's what happens a lot of times when we pray for our country, isn't it? We think of all the problems that are there, and we say, well, Lord, if you, this problem, and you know that group, and this people, and Lord, if you just fix that, you fix that. And God says, no, I don't want you just to humble yourself and pray. I want you to pray and seek my face. Hey, you know, that's what prayer is. It's intimacy with God. It is pursuing God. What God wants from his people is for them to pursue him, purposefully trying to draw near, uh, trying to get closer to the Lord. Is that the goal in prayer, or is it just to get through the prayer list? Is it just to express your complaints to the Lord? Is he the complaint department that you're coming to, or are you coming to him in prayer saying, God, I want to get nearer to you. I want to see you more clearly. I want to become more closely. I want to feel your presence in in my life. That's the kind of prayer that God is prescribing here. And then the final prescription is that they turn from their wicked ways. Who's he talking to again? The pesky atheist, the secularist, the pagan? No, he's talking to his people. His people. Not the ones who just claim to be his people, his people. And he says, you've got to repent of the wicked things that you know are in your life. Turn is the word that is used here. 
That word repent means a change of mind that results in a change of action. Hey, you and I can't just complain to God about how things are in our country and get up and walk away from that prayer time doing the exact same things that we did before we got there. There has to be something in our life that we realize this is something God wants to refine out of me. I have something in my life that I need to turn away from. And so... This is where most of us fall short because we have to identify our own sin and turn away from it. You know, I've discovered it's a whole lot easier to point out other people's sins. More enjoyable, too. You can build a small group on that. But it's really hard to find my own sins, you know. Because, you know, I know how well-intentioned I am. And I know that I have my faults and my shortcomings. And sometimes I say or do things. That, but, you know, I don't really mean it. Well, that's, not, that's not repentance. That's, that's not identifying and turning from our wicked ways. But God says, if you want to help your country, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, here's what he will do. Then, then. Then is a promise word. It indicates a promise response from God. If you will do this, then I will do that. It is a guaranteed result when the conditions are met. You say, how, how can we get God to do the second part of the verse? Well, when we do the first part, he'll do the second part. Then I will hear from heaven. It's interesting that God says that. Like He doesn't have to say that, right? I will hear you from the platform. Superfluous, right? Because I'm on the platform. You know I'm on the platform. I could just say, I will hear you. Why does God say, I will hear from heaven? Because although he is unseen, he's not unconcerned. You see, what happens is we say, where's God in all this mess? I mean, why is our country like this? Why are things happening like this? Why hasn't God intervened? Where's God at? He's in heaven. On his throne, waiting for the prayers of his people. I will hear from heaven. You know, this is a promise from God that he's listening for our prayers. As a matter of fact, just in case we missed it in verse 14, he repeats it in verse 15. Did you notice it? Now mine eyes shall be open and mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place he's watching and he's listening and he will hear if we humble ourselves pray seek his face turn from our wicked ways what else will he do he will forgive their sins i will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins this is a word of pardon this means a release from the penalty of judgment because what they are in that, that brings them to their knees to pray is not just bad luck. It's not just a hiccup in the market. It's not just a cycle. It is the judgment of God. 
And the judgment of God doesn't always come like Sodom and Gomorrah with fire raining down from heaven. Judgment comes by affecting people's prosperity, the economy, the peace that is going on in the world. All of those things that were covered in Solomon's prayer, those are judgments from God. As a matter of fact, usually God's first line of judgment is allowing us to suffer the repercussions of our own bad decisions. And so God says, I will forgive your sins. I will pardon your sins. I will release you from the penalty of my judgment. But not only is it a legal word in the sense that a pardon is made, but it is also a relationship word in which a relationship is reconciled. And God says, I will be reconciled to my wayward children. Just like the father of the prodigal son allows his son to go into the far land and allows the son to experience the repercussion of his own bad decisions and the son's life becomes miserable when he's living far from the father but as soon as the son makes a return the father is on the lookout and the father runs to embrace him and the father brings him in and the father blesses him and does not judge him because of the repentance, the forgiveness, the reconciliation. And so God says, I'll do this for my people when they humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins. And this last word, and we're done, I will heal their land. Well, wait a minute. Land is different than people. Land really seems to indicate nation. It's the border or what's inside the borders of the nation of Israel. After all, this is of national concern. This is an answer to the king. This is a nation that has built a house to God in its capital city. This is a citizenry who has affirmed a covenant with God and a belief in God and has pursued a relationship with them. It is a physician's word that he uses here, but he uses it for the nation. I will heal their land. That word means to restore to health by making healthy again. Hey, isn't that wonderful news to know that, that, that just as our body can go through periods of unhealth and back to health again, so nations that become unhealthy can be restored to health again. As a matter of fact, that word heal comes from a primitive word that means to mend by stitching. You know, that's cool. Because they... They can do amazing things with sutures nowadays, can't they? I mean, I've seen wounds where people were gashed open. And there was a physician who stitched them back together. And that, that scar sometimes is barely visible because of the restoration of health that is there. Oh, I'm telling you, this is God's promise to restore blessing, productivity, and prosperity to the nation of Israel. Regardless of how far they had gone, God says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. Don't believe it? That's a bold claim. 
Well, just read 2 Chronicles 34. And you'll find out that 400 years later, Israel had gotten pretty far away from God. And there arose a king named Josiah. He was just a boy when he came to the throne, but he had a godly grandfather who had influenced him. And he began to walk in the ways of David. And he began to clean out the idols from the city. And he began to restore the house of the God. And they found the book, the Bible, the law of Moses. And when they read it, he was broken. He rent his clothes in public humility. He put sackcloth and ashes on. He commanded all the leaders of Israel to do that. The entire nation begins to repent. And God fulfilled the promise of 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And then Josiah had a son named Jeconiah, and the country got taken captive and sent into Babylon. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's what we can do for our nation. But let me tell you, we can't ride on what the generations before us have done, and we can't ensure what will happen in the generations to come. But you and I, the people of God today, can follow the prescription of 2 Corinthians 7, 2 Chronicles 7.14, and we can trust that God will keep his promise. Would you bow with me? As we bow our heads, close our eyes for just a moment. Tomorrow we celebrate our Independence Day as a nation. I believe that we all want a better country for our children. We can do something about that by following God's instructions. Oh, Lord, I do pray and ask that you would cause us on this holiday weekend to search our hearts, to invite you in, to expose those things in our lives that are unpleasing to you. Father, may we not get distracted by all of the talk and echo chambers that surround us. But may we get into a quiet place where we can pray and get on our knees and not just bring you a list of the problems that we think you need to take care of, but that we actually seek your face and realize that any sin that is in our life is an impediment to us getting closer to you. Father, may we realize that not only is there benefit for us as the individual, but there's going to be a collective benefit for our society if we, your people, will do these things. Well, Father, we understand that you have a plan, and we understand that there are some things that are preset, but we also understand that you've delegated to us a free will choice that has an impact on our generation. God, help us today to be your people that stands in the gap for our nation, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, stand with me and let's sing.